Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Welcome to episode 196 of the Barcelona Podcast, home to the most influential voices in the FC Barcelona community, brought to you by the Blue Wire Podcast Network and sponsored BetOnline.ag. I'm Dan Hilton, and today Kevin Williams has graciously joined me, not for a special edition of the show, but what I think is a necessary show to use this platform to have what I hope is a valuable conversation. Kevin, usually I have you on as a Barca fan, but today I have you on not only as a writer for the Barcelona football blog, but also as the distinguished journalist that you are in even your day job at the Chicago Tribune. So I want to thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. And, you know, certainly a distinguished uh, journalist, mean grumpy old man, I, I cop to that. Uh, that's, that's a role that I uh, play very well and uh, frankly enjoy playing. Well, we're here for all the grumps in this conversation. And honestly, everything is connected in this conversation we're going to have. But I want to start with the article you wrote for the Chicago Tribune that we're going to have down in the description in response to the current events in the United States. And then later on, we'll talk about this with FC Barcelona in mind. But we start with what is going on in the United States. That is the pressing thing for a lot of our listeners, the majority of which are in the United States. The protests around the country continue to, in response to the death of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police. As I said last show, if you come here just to be distracted or get away from the rest of the world, I would ask you, please turn it off now or continue to listen. I hope you do some reading about what is going on and we'll see you on Monday. But otherwise, Kevin, I want to start with the, that article you wrote a lot about the role of black athletes and their role in bringing attention to the injustice of police brutality. Do you think that this time what's happening in the United States is any different? No. Um, so what's different is the, the mass, mass of it, right? I mean, all 50 states had protests. We've never seen that before. Uh, the question is, why is this time so different, right? And, you know, you think about catalyzing moments in a movement and you know when Kaepernick knelt and given the way the cop looked when he was um, doing the exact same motion exact same gesture but this time on the neck of a man who was begging for his life it's fairly easy to link the two and think that part of what made this so huge is that you had this gesture that so many embraced being used for evil. And I think that that has made people angry. It's made them upset right now in a very different way that is compounded by the economy, by a pandemic, by a political 
system that many people feel doesn't have anything for them, those things are right now all coming together to make what would have been, say, two years ago, just another uh, police moment of them causing someone's death because, I mean, they have been found to have you know, killed another young black man, I believe, uh, uh, somewhere in Louisiana, right, by asphyxiation. Right? There's also Garner in New York. What makes this different is that it's it's now everything all at once. It's you know, politics, it's the economy, it's Floyd, it's a pandemic. It's just this roiling cauldron of unrest. And I don't know whether there's a way out of it right now with this nation, this president, and frankly, the way the police go about their business. You mentioned a lot about those athletes and, and listening, I think, is a main theme of the article. You've written a lot of your messages on social media as well. Colin Kaepernick takes a knee. He did say something trying to protest in the way that he did. LeBron James did say something. They wore the T-shirts, obviously. And you even go back to the incident with Donald Sterling and the Clippers and these, these watershed moments where you could have felt like in the last five to 10 years, things were changing, but then nothing changed. What role do you think that the media, and we know that the media is as polarized as the people at home, but what can the media do to get people to start listening? How can they cover this differently? And how can they make sure that this moment is different than all the rest? So that's fascinating. Um, uh, the other day on social media, I had a discussion about how newer media uh, outlets, right? I mean, in uh, Chicago, we have two outlets. One is a uh, Black Club Chicago. One is called the uh, Tribe, and the the uh, the latter is particularly fascinating because it was started uh, by a very talented uh, young black journalist, a woman named Tiffany Walden, and she did some work with me and decided that she wanted to tell her stories in a way that took in her viewpoint and didn't feel like a traditional media outlet offered that option. So they're now, I think, two years old and they're amazing, right? So they're they're telling these very different stories. Uh, traditional media has a role in this that I don't think right now we are fulfilling because we are looking at it from a very traditional worldview. So we focus on the looting. We focus on property damage. We um, tisk tisk the, the anger that we see from people. And we never or we rarely look at the why. And the why is much more important. Like, so first of all, you have people who are using this to raise hell, right? You know, those people are separate from the protests. Some of the protesters have been violent in that they've set things on fire, they've thrown things at our police. That's part of the anger in this, right? That's part of the rage. I mean, that's not saying it's right, but it's saying that you have to under stand why people are that, that angry and focus more attention on that. And right now we're looking at, you know, the millions of dollars lost and, you know, we're going to come out of coronavirus and now we're being set back. It's all these things that 
sort of take focus away from where they should be, which is why so many people in all 50 states feel like this. And that's where I think we we can and should be better about it. And running the occasional editorial by someone is not the issue. It's the coverage, how we cover it, and what we do with it. Uh, covers that I think is, is is coming up short in every traditional uh, media outlet. Yeah, that's I think that's certainly correct on on all grounds, and I think that lack of hope and it's not just one year. It's again we're talking about a hundred years, hundreds of years of injustice that is boiling up to these moments. It's the same thing with the civil rights movements and the, the Rodney King riots and all these different times when it could have been that moment. Uh, I. I really have enjoyed those those rare moments when you see things that are breaking through that seem to be what hope is and hope is actual physical change and one of the resources we're going to have down there for more reading is the 8cantwait.org Dre McKesson has this and it tells you tangible things that it's not even an attack on police that it's it's in those police forces you can ban chokeholds and strangleholds it's it's proven to work. There's data to back up that those kind of measures work, that exhausting all other means before shooting, there's a duty to intervene, requiring de-escalation. There's all these different methods and ways that can be put into effect. Actual are substantive change that so much of that data and research has even been compiled since since Ferguson five years ago. And, and, and those moments. So when they say what is different this time is that there also has been since Ferguson a collection of data that is prepared for lawmakers to make changes in legislation. And these protests are, in my hope, the push over the line for real measures of change to occur. Because you don't solve, I mean, we don't, we're not going to solve the idea of racism. You're not going to change the mind of everyone around you. But yeah, if no. you can change what's happening with lawmakers and again voting i think i say this i say i don't talk about politics but it's weird how the term voting has such connotation now depending on the words and the sentences you use around the term voting yeah no i mean so look ferguson um just um got its first black mayor this week right Mm -hmm. um voting matters election matters the larger issue is that when you look at for me, it's more about police and policing than legislation. I mean, we remember the old movies, right? Where the, the beat cop walked the street, you know, swinging his billy club more for, you know, something with his hand to do and there'd be some out rest and he'd walk up and say, George, what's going on, right? You know, don't you have something better to do? What's going on here? So that I idea and that ideal right of of the role of police that came from real life beat cops walked the beat knew the people knew the people on the beat they knew that you know that guy over there was more prone to anger they knew that guy over there was slightly disturbed and needed a different you know way to be dealt with now they roll through communities um, in these cars uh, behind bulletproof glass, and they look at at everyone as a potential miscreant instead of you know serve serve and protect 
has uh, become, you know, suppressing control. And with the equipment they now have, right, riot shields, tanks, for Christ's sake, all this military stuff, long rifles. I mean, it's changed the way they look at the idea of, of policing. I mean, if you look at what Camden did now about four years ago, where they wiped out the police force and started this new thing, I mean, they had no unrest, right, at the, their recent protest because it was heavily based in the idea of a community policing and being part of the community in a way that makes the officers, what's the word I'm looking for, it makes them, you know, part of the solution, not this occupier there to solve a problem. Yeah, Camden is a, a great point. I, it, it was, what, seven, eight years ago, they were number one in crime rate per capita, and yet yeah. you jump forward to today, and that is certainly a different data. And I, I think that our points almost, they work so hand in hand, but you're absolutely right that so much of it does happen in the communities, what is happening on the ground. And you're right, even, yeah, I mean, I think not even that I spoke out of turn, but that the communities themselves are enacting a change just on smaller. I mean, that's what's happening, where you can make claims about the federal government and big governments. But when you look at where change substantially happened, it's at local community level. And, you know, at this point, Kevin, I'm going to pivot a little bit. We're going to continue to talk about this, but we're going to talk about this through the lens of sports. Going back to your article, even in the Bundesliga, Marcus Thurum, Jaden Sancho and Weston McKenney showed support to George Floyd and the protests. And while the normal result would have been disciplined for those three, the trio was not disciplined by the DFB. That's an improvement I guess, but obviously that is the bare minimum they could have possibly done. What do you think needs to happen next with the federations and soccer organizations in their response to this? So, I mean, we've seen the football association basically say they're not going to not going to punish anybody who shows solidarity. Um, there is also a similar thing from UEFA, right? I mean, that's nice, yet it doesn't solve anything because racism is as virulent a, a problem in European football as it was uh, 20 years ago, right? It's, it's just, it's got these masks on it now where people think it's not as bad. I mean, what can FAs do? I mean, these first gestures are nice, but back it up with substantive gestures. I mean, that I've said before, the first incident of racism during a match, that match should be stopped and the field should be cleared. Um, then you make an announcement. And I mean, look, there are protocols for this right now that are not being followed. You know, where we hear monkey chants in Italy, Russia, uh, their Champions League uh, matches, these protocols are not being followed. I mean, and they're fairly stringent and they are aimed at not really ending racism because you can't but they're aimed at making it so expensive for racists to act out that that becomes this sort of curb on them i mean football associations can't fix what people bring to a match but right? all they can do is make it so expensive for them to act out on that. I mean, look, if a 
racist knew that being racist would dock his team three points, they wouldn't do it. It's as simple as that. Right. Even if they're even if the thoughts in their head and those things happen at home, right, they, they keep it out of the stadium. But I think the point you also bring up that's really important to note is the United States and, and the protests and the police brutality, and there's a good reason why there are protests going on in the rest of the world. This is a this is a US problem looking through US history and looking back in the mirror at this problem. And in different European countries, there is not to say that there's almost a, a bar graph or that racism works in different ways, but there are the, the things that happen in Russia are different than the things that happen in France. And they're different from the things that are happening in Norway. And every country in, in Europe has its own relationship with racism and has its own uh, history that they have to reckon with and deal with. And uh, I think that is a really good point when it comes to the Champions League that What's happening in Italy just seems to be more blatant. It doesn't mean it's more racist than it is in Spain, but in Italy, it seems like there is just an empowering of racist attitude and, and racist behavior. However, I want to focus on Spain now for a moment. There was an incident earlier this year with Mallorca coach and Takafusa Kubo that was dismissed. In January, Inaki Williams from Athletic Bilbao was racially abused against Espanyol. In 2018, Sergio Garcia racially abused Sammy Untiti. Jefferson Lerma from Levante had an incident with Iago Aspas, as did Marcelo with our own Barcelona's Sergio Busquets. And most importantly, I want to hope no one forgets the 2014 incident with Dani Alves that involved Villarreal fans throwing a banana at him. Now Alves, being the guy he is, let it roll off. He took a bite of the banana. But if it was another player, there might have been a different ending to that story. And that's not before. I mean, we're not talking about the UK in the 80s. We're talking about things that have happened in the last five, six years just now in Spain. And I think the thing that is, I think two big ideas come out of that, Kevin, that I want you to address is that one that when the refs dismiss, the, dismiss these incidents in-game, if there is no stoppage, even if the players don't walk out and protest because they're, because no one heard it, maybe it was just the two players involved, but when the ref does not make note of that incident and make sure that it is, you know, it is figured out and that it is worked on and dismissing it in the moment is certainly more destructive. And it means that nothing happens down the line. No punishment is ever given to any of those players, obviously. And then part two is when you have a player like a Danny Alves who was racially abused, and, and he was, and he's a teammate of Sergio Busquets, who's being accused of a racist act against Marcelo. How do fans reckon with racist behavior from their own players? So football is about money. Referees aren't really empowered to solve these problems because they understand that they are basically being given the reins, the control of millions and millions of dollars. So for a ref to say, I heard that this match is over, uh, your team loses, for someone to empower that has to come from very high up. And look, referees are there to do a very hard job. I mean, uh, they have a hard time getting fouls right, never mind being in support of social justice. What someone has to do to them is say, look, it doesn't matter what else happens. When these incidents happen, you have to stop the match. We have a protocol. Use that protocol. Without that, refs are fearful and maybe understandably so, right? Because I mean, 
a potential riot um, by doing a gesture that stands up for the humanity of a single player, there are these widespread repercussions that may come of that, that action. Without them being empowered to perform that, that action, they will continue to do nothing. As far as the players go, it's hard because my, my reaction is always walk off the pitch, right? Um, Balotelli did it walk off and it hurts my heart as we saw with um keen at uh, juventus where you have his own teammates remonstrating with him to know stay keep going why should he right when someone takes your humanity why should you you know keep shucking and jiving for the same people who don't think you're a human he should walk off the big problem with this is that Players are united as a team, as a bunch of mercenaries, but they're not united as humans. So the reaction that the whole group should have, which is to all walk off, never occurs to anybody because they're not linked in that way, right? The human rights of one is not the human rights of all. What the U.S. has taught us is that now we're seeing that when people have a sense of human rights being violated and what that means for them. It leads to this widespread reaction. The other thing, don't forget as a uh, side, is that the reason most of the U.S. protesters, white protesters, are young is because if you think about a generation that grew up, I mean, the last 10 years, really, hip-hop has been the predominant pop culture force in the U.S. So these kids, uh, they're now in high school, now in college, now young adults, grew up um, hearing rap, watching rappers, listening to rap, wearing the, the clothing, adopting the, the culture. So there is a comfort with, there's also this identification with that culture. And that means that they're going to react to that sort of incident in a very different way than their parents will. That's this subtext of what's going on that has not been touched on by very many people. Is hip hop generation is now the activism generation. And so they are dealing with racial injustice in a very different way than even 30 year olds would now. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up media and particularly music being a powerful force there. Because the other thing I do want to speak about is just the language and words that we use, and particularly white people, I'm talking about the language that we use in even our day to day jobs for those of us in media. So one of my other jobs that I do play by play for some local colleges in the area in New York, including a lot of basketball and soccer. And I've been thinking a lot about the words that I've used over the last 10 years on the air or the stereotypes that exist in my profession in play-by-play, -play, in delivering sports and delivering media to people. I think in my industry, I hear a lot of it that black athletes are fast, they're powerful, they're athletic, where I don't know the other team as well as I know my own team. So for three minutes of seeing their backup point guard, 
I'm just assuming that he's fast, he's powerful, he's athletic. That's the default description if we don't know anything about that black player. While white players are so often labeled on the basketball court especially, they're scrappy, they're hardworking, and all of those different stereotypes that go along with being a white basketball player. Now, I think for the, in, in terms of soccer, style of play, and this is, I think, a little bit unlike basketball, but style of play in soccer can work regionally, like technical ability in, in Spanish football. But I think more attention really needs to be paid to how we speak about these athletes and the descriptors and the adjectives that we use when we, even those in media, again, and in writing as well, when we write about these athletes, if you had to describe a, a Jaden Sancho in three characteristics or three words, what are the three adjectives that you use to explain what kind of a player Jaden Sancho is. So Kevin, I know it's an impossible ask, but how do you think we can do better? Again, not be perfect, but how can we do better not to perpetuate racial stereotypes when talking about athletes? That's hard, right? Because everybody comes from a background and everybody absorbs influences from their current environment. So when someone describes a black player as a beast, right? I mean, that is something that I would never do because I have not absorbed the influences that lead to and perpetuate that thinking about a, a Black athlete. White announcers, right? And let's not forget that, I mean, announcing crew everywhere is still overwhelmingly white. They don't have those same influences. So when you think about the spontaneity of announcing, right? It's reflex. And even when something isn't racist and a lot of stuff that is perceived as racist is not like, you know, someone might not think that, you know, calling Lukaku a beast is racist, right? They just think, look, he's built like a house, right? I mean, dude's a beast, right? It's not racist. It's how they think he deals with the game. The issue with that is would involve, you know, deconditioning. It would involve thinking before you speak. And while announcing, as you know, is speaking, games mean that there's not a lot of time really to think before you speak. Now, writing, it's much less excusable in writing. In writing, it's like you have all day to choose the right word. Why would you pick the wrong word? We have to think of, about athletes, not white athletes, not black athletes. We have to think about, about athletes. So, so Ansu Fati is insanely skilled. First touch is a dream. He's technically adept. So what's the overriding thing that strikes you about his game? For me, it's technical fluency, right? For someone else, it might be he's fast. Now, the context of him being fast is fine, right? He is. But when you think about how you describe him and you think about reducing him to physical attributes, like fast, like strong, like being a beast, you have to understand that that comes with the baggage of years, right, of centuries of the kind of language that dealt with slaves and and other involuntary servants, right? I mean, this big black is a beast, right? He'll plow your fields like nobody's ever plowed your fields. That's 
part of it and the thinking the deprogramming has to happen at a level that sport can't solve except by getting more diversity in the announcing booths where people have examples of the right way to talk about athletes yeah and again it when you're talking about on air you're talking about when things are happening reflexively that i i think about ansu fadi's goal against osasuna that header because the the fact is it was a powerful header but when you explain the action of him hitting that header the most important part of that whole goal was his movement in the box and yes. i think that's something that's taken away from it, there's this idea that black athletes and black players especially in the in the world of, of, of football and soccer they don't understand tactics they don't understand movement as well as their, their white counterparts i mean you compare the way we speak about nelson Semedo and sergio roberto Sergio Roberto grew up in La Masia. That's why we credit him for being having the brain he has, right? And we know that, uh, and then we say, well, Nelson Semedo is the superior athlete. That's why he's better defensively. And I think those are just, those are generalizations where it can be true that Nelson Semedo is a better defender than Sergio Roberto, full stop. But I don't think race matters in that. It's not Nelson Semedo's skill set is built to be the better defender. And Sergio Roberto, he might understand Barca's tactics better than Semedo, but that doesn't mean that Semedo if they brought in another right back like uh, De Siglio, if they brought in somebody else like that, there's no reason why Nelson Semedo can't pick up and understand the tactics that Barcelona are trying to go with just as fast or faster than any other right back that they would bring from outside the club in. No, I mean, look, the reality is players are good and players are bad. And those attributes have little to do with their race, but how they are perceived perceived often has everything to do with their race because of the biases and baggage that the people who are perceiving them bring to that evaluation you know it is so my wife who is white has been married to me now for almost 30 years and we often go to company functions and at one of them the day after at her office, one of her colleagues said, well, uh, my, your husband is really well spoken. And she said, well, why wouldn't he be? He's a, been a journalist for the past 25 years. Oh, he uses words for a living. What do you mean by that? Right? So right away, it presented that person with this dilemma they have to solve and how they look at someone it's the same way with players i mean you have to be smart to play football right none of it is this reactive thing it's tactics it's movement it's consideration of what your team is is doing it's thinking 10 steps ahead a shabby is no more or less intelligent than a William Carvalho, yet the perception is that they're different. And the only thing that differentiates them is size, race, strength. So we have to start thinking of athletes as athletes with attributes. And you have, in thinking about that, you have to unload the baggage that so many people bring to those. And I don't know how you do that except to change the composition 
of the broadcast booth, but but also to authorize people to say, wait, hang on, what do you mean by that? Right? When you say that that player is a beast, what do you mean? On the air. Call them out on the air. That's the only way this stuff stops. Yeah, listening and learning is, as you said back all the way in your article, that listening and learning from from white people and those on air and those in positions where they're spreading a message are, is certainly key and paramount to to enacting that change. And I would also say, too, I want to put some of the onus on those when you're receiving that information from people who need to be listening a little bit better when you're reading something or you're listening to a, a broadcast. And I think we intrinsically need to start to understand that Samuel Umtiti and Gerard Piquet do not have the same life. And when you read something about both those articles, it's not the same. Neither do Nelson Semedo and Sergio Roberto, as I mentioned, or Ansu Fadi and Ricky Pouge, Junior Furpo, Ismael Nebele, Martin Braithwaite, and Arturi Vidal, as opposed to even Rakitic, Frankie Young, and Sergio Busquets. It's just different. In a way match for one is not in a way match for another. There, it's, it can be a different experience on the same team even. So they are professionals, and we expect them to be mentally tough enough for anything. So I think, unfortunately, as you mentioned all the way back when we were speaking about the fans, little accountability is ever shown for the vile words and actions of the fans. But the fans also means us. And I think you're right about that accountability. And I think anybody, I, I, I always tell myself in here too that everybody can be better with just being a fan. That if you're at a, a, a Pena event or if you're watching with some friends and you're watching fans, and it doesn't have to be that they've said some terrible, um, horribly offensive thing, but if they have just said some minor thing that can represent, as you said, about calling uh, Lukaku or calling him TT uh, a beast, that there is things in those moments, there, there are these subtle conversations that can have, that it's, it's not about some consternation, it's just about a simple conversation that can lead to just a, a minor change there, and it will change all the thinking eventually. So Kevin, I, yeah, I really appreciate for the time you took, not just to partake in, in teaching me something, but just providing your voice to this. I really appreciate this. Oh, it's my pleasure. Happy to do it. Yeah, Kevin did not have responsibility to come on this podcast and did anyway. Again, I really, really appreciate that. And I do thank all of our listeners for joining us today. Frances and I will be back on Monday talking football, and then the league returns soon after. But for our listeners in the U.S., that doesn't mean, even though Frances and I will be talking again about football, that things are back to normal. I hope there is no back to normal and this energy continues on and we continue to move forward with this conversation. I want you to please check out the description down below for Kevin's piece in the Chicago Tribune if you didn't read it prior to this conversation. And then we also have additional resources in support of Black Lives Matter. And again, thanks so much for listening to the Barcelona Podcast and we'll talk to you soon. There is no shortage of action going on at our exclusive partner, Bet Online. NASCAR is back, and Bet Online has hundreds of other games, events, and sports to get in on. You can still bet on simulated NFL, NBA, and UFC events 24 7. Or you can participate in a $10,000 Madden Bracket Challenge, a March Madness style NFL simulation tournament you can enter for free. And live right now on Bet Online's YouTube channel, you'll find an exclusive interview with ex Chicago's Bulls, Ron Harper, Horace Grant, Bill Cartwright, and Craig Hodges to discuss the Michael Jordan documentary on what they're calling the final dance. Visit betonline.ag and use promo code BLUEWIRE to receive your new welcome bonus and check out all the action. BetOnline, your online wagering solution. Hey, this is Megan Rapino, And I'm Sue Bird. We've decided to turn our crazy IG live show into a podcast for your listening pleasure. Enjoy the show. A touch more.
New episodes of A Touch More drop Tuesday only on the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts.